As Justin said, we have two readings. The first one comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 3. And this is on page 5 of your orders of service. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from their left, and also many animals? The second reading is from Nahum, chapter 1. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is, the, his way is in the whirlwind and in the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and a sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. Look at your troops. They are all weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your defenses. Work the clay. Tread the mortar. Repair the brickwork. There the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down, and it will devour you like a swarm of locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers. Multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants till they are more numerous than the stars in the sky. 
But like locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. Your guards are like locusts. Your officials are like swarms of locusts that settle in the walls on a cold day. But when the sun appears, they fly away, and no one knows where. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has felt your endless cruelty? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jeremy. Some of us like to start the day by reading our Bibles over breakfast. In fact, there's a gentleman at our 6 p.m. service who goes by the mantra, no Bible, no breakfast. So I want you to imagine sitting down and reading the book of Nahum uh, over breakfast before work one morning. It begins, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. It's enough to make you choke on your wheat picks. And it just goes on and on. Uh, 1 verse 6, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And later on, verse 14, I will prepare your grave for you are vile. On and on. 47 verses like this, graphic imagery of natural disasters, sieges with bodies piled high, prostitutes exposed and ridiculed, infants dashed to pieces, and that twice-repeated refrain, I am against you, from the Lord Almighty in chapters 2 and 3. All in all, a pretty disturbing book, applying what appear to be pretty disturbing attributes to God. One of the commentators I was reading was preaching a series from the Old Testament in his church. And a woman who'd just become a Christian after years of atheism came up to him after the sermon to complain about his preaching. She was very uncomfortable with what she'd been hearing. Taking her Bible out from her bag, she opened it to the page that separated the Old and the New Testament. And then she took some scissors out of her bag and cut the Old Testament from the New. And then in a loud voice so that the people around her could hear, she said something along these lines. The Old Testament tells me about a God of wrath. The New Testament teaches about a God of love. And then she thrusts the New Testament at him and says, preach that. And you know these feelings aren't new. Way back in the second century, Marcion felt that many of the teachings of Jesus were incompatible with the angry God of the Old Testament, so he set about removing from his Bible all of the offending texts. But the problem is, when you take out all the texts that mention the wrath of God, well, you're not left with very much Bible. Bible scholar Leon Morris counts nearly 600 references to the wrath of the God in the Old Testament using more than 20 different words. And then when you turn to the New Testament, we find that 13% of Jesus' teaching and around half of his parables have to do with judgment and hell. So, Marcion ended up with 11 books in his Bible. We've got 66. 
the 11 books were a severely edited version of Luke's Gospel, and then 10 of Paul's letters, which he'd also altered to fit his views. You know, I suspect he ran a line through that part in Paul's letter to Timothy that said, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And who knows what Marcion made of Paul's farewell to the Ephesians, where Paul said, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. And yet, many of us have heard it too, haven't we? Perhaps as Jeremy read our Nahum passages a moment ago, you might have felt it in your own heart. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's so angry. He wiped out nations and families and children. But Jesus, well, Jesus I can respect, relate to, even love. After all, didn't Jesus say to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek? and to bless those who persecute you. Jesus taught John that God is love. If God is love in the New Testament, then how can we possibly reconcile him with the angry and vengeful God that we find in the Old Testament? If God is love, what are we to make of Nahum? Well, perhaps a helpful place to start might be to remember there are plenty of people around the world this morning who didn't read Nahum at the breakfast table over their wheat bix before heading off to work. You see, safer for them to deal cocaine in a Bali airport than read their Bibles at home. While most of us feel safe in our homes, many people around the world are not safe from despots and dictators. And these are exactly the type of people that Nahum was first written to. Not to God's people in Sydney, but to God's people in places like North Korea. In North Korea, you're forced to worship the Kim family. Open Doors estimates that there are more than 50,000 Christians in prison or labour camps because of Jesus. Now, if they read Nahum over breakfast, they do so from memory, as they go out to another day of beatings and hard labour for the gospel. I wonder what they think of a God who promises vengeance against regimes who oppress his people. Put yourself in their shoes this morning. In Nigeria last year, the killing of Christians rose by 62%. I wonder how their families read Nahum, a book in which God promises vengeance for losses like theirs. Did you catch the news this week? Um, there was that Saudi journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. He wasn't a Christian, but he is a picture of what goes on back home. He was reportedly lured into the Saudi consulate in Turkey, tortured and dismembered. His body dissolved in acid. Uh, Turkish uh, newspaper outlets um, report that his colleagues and wife heard the audio from his Apple Watch, which was synced to his iPhone that he'd left with them. Imagine what it's like for Christians back home in an Islamic state like Saudi Arabia. I'm sorry that was graphic, but you know, what happened to him? Well, that's exactly the historical context into which the book of Nahum was written. 
Nahum, as the first verse says, is a prophecy concerning Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, the superpower of the 8th and 7th centuries that had utterly wiped out from the face of the earth 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what's more, they were closing in on Judah, all that was left of God's people. And the Assyrian Empire of the time was the most brutal in all of human history. When you think of the king of Assyria and his regime, think Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, all rolled into one. In fact, if you ever travel to the British Museum, you'll find vast amounts of evidence, artifacts and reliefs boasting of the atrocities that the Assyrian Empire committed. Nahum is writing during the reign of Ashurbanipal. And to give you an idea, some pictures depict Ashurbanipal putting a dog chain through the jaw of a defeated Arab king and then making him live in a dog kennel. Or in his own words, as for those common men who had spoken derogatory things against my god Asher and had plotted against me, the prince who reveres him, I tore out their tongues and abased them. As a posthumous offering, it's to Asher, I smashed the rest of the people alive by the very figures of protective deities between which they had smashed Sennacherib, my father, my grandfather. Their cut-up flesh I fed to the dogs, swine, jackals, birds, vultures, to birds of the sky and to the fishes of the deep pools. Brutality in battle. That's what the Assyrians were famous for. Their gods were gods of battle. Their offerings, the spoils of war. Again, I apologize, it's graphic. When it came to their defeated enemies, it was their custom to tear off people's skin, to put their eyes out, to bore holes through their jaws and insert chains, and cut off their fingers, lips, and noses. Nahum's only one of two books in the Bible to end with a question. And the question it ends with is, is this. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? God said that to the Assyrians. In the British Museum, you'll find reliefs from the siege of the Israelite city of Lachish, in which you see these depictions of God's people being impaled, beheaded, and otherwise mutilated. Assyria had taken Israel, and they were coming for Judah. So you can imagine what it was like for the people of Judah in Nahum's day. They lived in the hill country and the less desirable parts of the region, so they'd been left for last. For decades, they were left in the hills watching the vile Assyrian Empire wash over them. They'd already taken more than 50 of Judah's outlying cities, and they were being threatened and pressed by one of the world's great powers. And then, at the height of Assyrian domination a prophet from the tiny nation of Judah spoke out against one of the world's oldest superpowers. Imagine addressing these words to Ashurbanipal in his palace in Nineveh, or to King Jong-un about his treatment of Christians in Korea, or to the leaders of a strict Islamic state like Saudi Arabia. From chapter 1, imagine addressing these words to them. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty 
unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Karma wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. And you know, this is war poetry at its best. Uh, in the Hebrew, uh, Nahum begins with an acrostic. Uh, that's a poem that follows the letters of the alphabet. You know, the first line beginning with an A, the second line beginning with a B, the third line a C, and so on. But you know, then about halfway in, chaos descends, the acrostic broken, order completely lost as the whole created order is shaken and turned on its head by the wrath of God. God is furious at Assyria for what they've done to his people and for their endless cruelty. He is furious at their oppressive regime. His wrath is poured out like fire, verse 6. He will pursue his enemies into the realm of darkness, verse 8. He will make an end of Nineveh, capital city of Assyria, verse 8 again. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile, verse 14. I am against you, 2 verse 3, for oppressing my people and all the cruelty you have shown. I am against you, Kim Jong-un. I am against you, again, in 3 verse 5. And then, directly to Ashurbanipal to end the book, king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Look at chapter 3, verse 1 there. Here's Nineveh in a sentence. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. And we've heard this in our series in the Minor Prophets. We've heard it in Hosea, in Amos, in Micah. It's the refrain of the Minor Prophets. God is a God of justice. He will not sit idly by and see the wicked prosper while his people are oppressed or while his, pe his people oppress others. And yet in a couple of weeks, we'll hear it again from Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1 verse 3. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And so God is angry. He's furious. And he promises to act in fierce judgment. And yet we claim that God is love. Well, how? How do we reconcile these two pictures of God? I think the answer is that God's wrath is the other side of his love. His love is the reason he's so angry in Nahum and why he will not let the guilty go unpunished. 
His wrath is the other side of His love. If, if God really is love, if God really is good, could He turn a blind eye to injustice? Of course not. His patience is often lasting, but it's not everlasting. God just doesn't sit by when atrocities are committed by his people, uh, against his people on this earth. He doesn't just sit by, he gets angry, and then he acts. He wipes Assyria from the face of the earth as a picture of what he'll one day do with all evil. He's slow to anger, but he's also great in power, and he will not let leave the guilty unpunished. That's Nahum 1.3. Now, Open Doors estimates that 215 million Christians now experience high, very high, or extreme levels of persecution. That means that one in 12 Christians live where Christianity is illegal, forbidden, or punished. Nahum is for them. A woman has locked herself in her car, her lips bleeding. Her husband is drunk outside. It's not the first time, it won't be the last. All her friends tell her to get out, but for various reasons, she just can't. She flinches as he hits the window, hurts his knuckles, and stalks off into the night. He'll sleep it off, but maybe he won't. What does the Bible have for her? Turn the other cheek? Love your enemies? Bless those who persecute you? No! I am against you, says the Lord. Nahum's for her. And these words for her husband as much as they are for Assyria. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble for people like her. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes like him into the realm of darkness. Nahum is for her. And if she is you this morning, know this. We're here to listen and we're ready to help. But believe me, when God, believe me, when, when God says that he cares, he, he cares. And if he is you, know as well that God will judge the abuser and the bully. What happens to Nineveh? Well, in 612 BC, the Medes and Babylonians descend and the city is so utterly annihilated from the face of the earth that Nineveh's very location was lost to history for more than a thousand years. What happens to Nineveh? Well, exactly this from chapter 3. And as I read it, listen again to some of the finest war poetry in ancient literature. Listen to how the staccato builds towards a crescendo. 
the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, and on it goes, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. You can feel that march coming on. And the prophet, he's preaching in such a way, it's a very powerful literary, literary technique. So you can almost hear the chariots coming. You can almost feel the rumble of the ground as they come. You're supposed to feel that because you're living on the edge of the final day of God as well. You're living in the light of these realities. Their sins were great. My sins are great. And the judgment of God must come marching against my personal sins. They're awful. They're evil. They're against him, my sins. My sins alone are sufficient to bring on the full wrath of God and make the very earth tremble. You can't domesticate God. Don't domesticate God. If you do, you do the world a disservice when you try. See, a God of love who has no wrath is no God at all. He's a cardboard cutout. He's an idol of our own making, as much as if we carved him out of stone, I see Sproul. So how do we reconcile this God with what we read in the New Testament and the life of Jesus? And this is the key, by the way. This is why I love the Old and the New Testament. The judgment described in Nahum, the, the march of God's anger towards me and my sins, is exactly what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He bore my sin. God's wrath overtook him and not me. And that's the reason that the day turned to night. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the awesome wrath of God had fallen upon his own son because of the love they both bore for me. God is love. In fact, here's how he describes himself in the Old Testament in Exodus 33, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. God is love. He's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin over and over again. Just look at our first reading at the book of Jonah. And by the way, I think we can finally see where Jonah is coming from, right? He wanted to see Nineveh, the capital of wicked Assyria, annihilated for the wickedness that they'd done. He wanted it to distraction. He was prepared to throw himself into the ocean, to take his own life, to see it happen, to see them destroyed. But our God, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, gave Nineveh one last chance. We read before the last verse of Jonah, which said, this is God speaking, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, 
in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. So God gave Nineveh one last chance. And God is giving us one last chance. Right now there's a window. God graciously gave Assyria a hundred years between the message of Jonah and the message of Nahum. And God has graciously given us about a hundred years on this earth to come to a knowledge of him, turn away from our sins and receive his forgiveness and salvation. Nahum let it be known that God would punish Nineveh. So he would, and so he did. If you're not a Christian, I wonder what implications it has for you. If you begin to understand that there is a God, and that this God is in charge, and that this God is completely good, and that he's morally pure, and you are not, but that you are and have been in rebellion against him, no matter how polite all of your rebellion may have looked. And one day you'll come face to face with this God and give an account for the way you have lived your life. If you stop the rush in your thoughts about what's going to happen an hour from now and three hours from now and tomorrow and a week from next Tuesday, and you begin to consider that what will be your state throughout all eternity and begin to consider the accounting you will give to God, when you begin to realize that when you stand before God, no excuses will then stand. You may make them, but they will not stand. None will even be entertained. The judge who will be standing before you is omniscient, he's all-knowing, and he's completely good, and he's determined, and he's always correct, and there will be no possibility either of appeal or, if convicted, parole. Nations like Assyria rise and fall. But as people, we don't end in our death. We will stand eternally accountable to God. And who can stand up under such scrutiny on that day? The only answer is Jesus. And he has done so for you you'll only repent of your sins, trust in the cross, and live the remainder of your days in love and service of him. Which means that Nahum is for all of us. Nahum is for you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus. Thank you that any tension between your judgment, anger, and love is completely and wondrously resolved in him. And Father, this morning we pray particularly for our brothers and sisters at home and abroad who wake this morning to severe persecution for their faith. Please remind them today by the power of your Holy Spirit that you are sovereign, you love them, you are faithful to them, you are angry at what is happening to them, and that you will not Never, you will never let the guilty go unpunished. Please deliver them today from evil. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.